Chapter Three of His Dog. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. His Dog by Albert Payson Terhune. Chapter Three, The Ordeal. By dawn on Labor Day, Link Ferris was astir. A series of discomforting baths and repeated currying with the dandy brush had made Chum's grand coat stand out in shimmering fluffiness. A course of carefully conducted circular promenades on the end of a chain had taught the dog to walk gaily and unrestrainedly in leash, and any of several cryptic words relating to hypothetical rats and so forth were quite enough to send up his ears. It was sheer excitement that brought Link broad awake before sunrise on that day of days. Ferris was infected with the most virulent form of that weird malady known as dog-showitis. At first he had been tempted solely by the hope of winning the hundred-dollar prize, but latterly the urge of victory had gotten into his blood. And he yearned, too, to let the world see what a marvelous dog was his. He hurried through the morning chores, then dressed himself in his shabby best and hitched his horse to the antiquated Concord buggy, a vehicle he had been washing for the state occasion almost as vehemently as he had scrubbed chum. After a gobbled breakfast, Ferris mounted to the seat of the aged buggy, signaled chum to leap to the battered cushion at his side, and set off for Craigswold. Long before ten o'clock, his horse was safely stabled at the Craigswold livery, and Ferris was leading Chum proudly through the wicket gate leading into the country club grounds. All happened as the postmaster had foretold. The clerk at the wicket asked him his name, fumbled through a ledger and a pile of envelopes, and presently handed Ferris a numbered tag. Sixty-five, read the clerk for Link's benefit. That's down at the extreme right, almost the last bench to the right. Into the hallowed precinct Link piloted the much-interested chum. There he paused for a dazzled instant. The putting green and the forelawn in front of the fieldstone clubhouse had been covered with a mass of wooden alleyways, each lined with a double row of stalls about two feet from the ground carpeted with straw and having individual zinc water troughs in front of them. In nearly every one of these benches was tied a dog. There were more dogs than Link Ferris had seen before in all his quasi-dogless life. And all of them seemed to be barking or yelping. The din was egregious. Along the alleyways, men and women in sport clothes were drifting in survey of the chained exhibits. In a central space among the lines of benches was a large square enclosure, roped off except for one aperture. In the middle of this space, which Link rightly guessed to be the judging ring, stood a very low wooden platform. At one side of the ring were a chair and a table, where sat a steward in a Palm Beach suit, fussily turning over the leaves of a ledger and assorting a heap of high-packed and varicolored ribbons. Link, mindful of instructions, bore to the right in search of a stall labeled 65. As he went, he noted that the dogs were benched in such a way that each breed had a section to itself. 
Thus, while he was still some distance away from his designated bench, he saw that he was coming into a section of dogs which, in general aspect, resembled chum. Above this aggregation, as over others, hung a lettered sign. And this especial sign read, Collie Section. So, Chum was a collie, whatever that might be. Link took it to be a fancy term for bird dog. He had seen the word before somewhere. Ah, and he remembered now that it had been in the advertisement that offered seventy-five dollars for the return of a lost sable and white collie. Yes, and Dominie Jansen had said sable meant black. Link felt a glow of relief that the advertisement had not said a brown and white collie. Chum was viewing his new surroundings with much attention, looking up now and then into his master's face as they moved along the rackety line, as though to gain reassurance that all was well. To a high-strung and sensitive dog, a show is a terrific ordeal. But Chum, like the aristocrat he was, bore its preliminaries with debonair calm. Arriving at bench 65 in the collie section, Link enthroned his dog there, fastening the chain's free end to a ring in the stall's corner. Then, after seeing that the water pan was where Chum could reach it, in case he were thirsty, and that the straw made a comfortable couch for him, Ferris once more patted the worried dog and told him everything was all right, after which Link proceeded to take a survey of the neighboring collies, the sixteen dogs which were to be Chum's competitors. His first appraising glance of the double row of collies caused the furrow between his eyes to vanish and brought a grin of complacent satisfaction to his thin lips. For he did not see a single entrant that, in his eyes, seemed to have a ghost of a chance against his idolized pet, not a dog as handsome or with half the look of intelligence, or with the proudly gay bearing of chum. Of the sixteen other collies, the majority were sables of diverse shades. There were three tricolors and two mist-hued merles. Over nearly all the section's occupants, a swarm of owners and handlers were just now busy with brush and cloth. For word had come that collies were to be the second breed judged that day. The first breed was to be the Great Danes. As there were but three Danes in the show, their judging would be brief, and it behooved the collies' attendants to have their entries ready. Link, following the example of those around him, took from his pocket the molting dandy brush and set to work once more on Chum's coat. He observed that the rest were brushing their dogs for against the grain to make it fluff up, and he reversed his own former process in imitation of them. He had supposed until now that a collie's hair, like a man's, ought to be slicked down smooth for state occasions, and it troubled him to find that Chum's coat rebelled against such treatment. Now, under the reverse process, it stood out in wavy freedom. At the adjoining stall to the left, a decidedly pretty girl was watching a groom put the finishing touches to the toilet of her tricolor collie. Link heard her exclaim in protest as the groom removed from the dog's collar 
a huge cerise bow she had just affixed there. "'Sorry, miss,' Ferris heard the groom explain. "'But it's again rules for a dog to go in the ring with a ribbon on. "'If the judge thinks he's good enough for a ribbon, he'll award him one, but—' "'Oh, he simply can't help awarding one to Morvin here,' broke in the girl. "'Can he, Stokes?' "'Hard to say, miss,' answered the groom imperturbably, as he wrought with brush and cloth. "'Judges has their own ideas. We'll have to hope for the best for him and not be too sick if he gets gated.' "'Gated!' echoed the girl, an evident newcomer to the realm of showdom. "'Yes, miss,' expounded the groom. "'Gated means shown the gate.' Some judges thins out a class that way by sending the poorest dogs out of the ring first. Then again, some judges— Oh, I'm glad I wore this dress, sighed the girl. It goes so well with Morvan's color. Perhaps the judge— Excuse me, miss, put in the groom, trying not to laugh, but the collie judge today is Fred Layton. He bred the great Howgill rival, you know. And when Leighton is in the ring, he hasn't got eyes for anything but the dogs themselves. Begging your pardon, he wouldn't notice if you were to wear a horse blanket. At that, Leighton's the squarest and the best— Look, whispered the girl, whose attention had wandered and whose roving gaze had settled on Chum. Look at that dog in the next bench. Isn't he magnificent? Link swelled with pride at the low-spoken praise, and turning away to hide his satisfaction, he saw that quite a sizable knot of spectators had gathered in front of Chum's bench. They were inspecting the collie with manifest approval. Chum, embarrassed by the unaccustomed notice, had moved as far as possible from his admirers, and was nuzzling his head into Ferris's hand for refuge. "'Puppy class, male Scotch collies,' droned a ring attendant, appearing for a moment at the far end of the section. "'Numbers sixty, sixty-one, sixty-two. Three youngsters, ranging in age from seven to eleven months, were coaxed down from their straw couches by three excited owners, and were convoyed fussily toward the ring. "'Novice class next, miss.' Link heard the groom saying to the girl at the adjoining bench, "'Got his ring-leash ready?' Ring-leash? This was a new one to Ferris. His eyes followed the trio of puppies shuffling ringward. He saw that all three were on leather leashes and that their chains had been left in the stalls. Presumably there was a law against chains in the ring, and Link had no leash. For an instant he was in a quandary. Then his brow cleared. True, he had no leash. Yet, if chains, like bows of ribbon, were barred from the ring, he could maneuver Chum every bit as well with his voice as with any leash. So that problem was solved. A minute later the three pups reappeared at the end of the section, and behind them came the attendant, intoning, Novice class, male Scotch collies, numbers sixty-four, sixty-five, sixty-six, sixty-seven. 
There was an absurd throbbing in Link Ferris's meridian. His calloused hand shook as he unchained Chum and motioned him to leap from the bench to the ground. Chum obeyed, but with evident uneasiness. His odd surroundings were getting on the collie's nerves. Link bent over him under pretense of giving him a farewell rub with the brush. "'It's all right, Chummy,' he crooned soothingly. "'It's all right. I'm here, and nobody's going to bother you none. You're helping me win that hundred, and you're letting these gold-shirt folks see what a clam-gorgeous dog you be. Come along, old friend.' Under the comfort of his god's voice, Chum's nervousness fled. Safe in his sublime trust that his master would let no harm befall him, the collie trotted toward the ring at Ferris's heels. Three other novice dogs were already in the ring when Link arrived at the narrow opening. The steward was sitting at the table as before. At the corner of the ring, alongside the platform, stood a man in tweeds, unlighted pipe in mouth, half-shut, shrewd eyes studying the dogs as they filed in through the gap in the ropes. The inscrutable eyes flickered ever so little at sight of Chum, but at once resumed their former disinterested gaze. "'Walk close,' whispered Link as the parade started. Chum, hearing a command he had long since learned, ranged himself at Ferris's side and paced majestically in the procession of four. Two of the other novice dogs were straining at their leashes. The third was hanging back and pawing frantically to break away. Chum, unleashed, guided only by the voice, drew every eye to him by his rare beauty and his lofty self-possession. But he was not allowed to finish the parade. Stepping up to Ferris, Judge Leighton tapped him on the arm. "'Take your dog over to that corner,' he ordered, "'and keep him there.' Link fought back a yearning to punch the judge, and surlily he obeyed the mandate. Into his memory jumped the things the groom had said about a dog being gated. If that judge thought for one second that any of those mutts could hold a candle to chum— Again he yearned to enforce with his two willing fists his opinion of the judge. But, as he well knew, to start a fight in this plutocratic assemblage would mean a jail term. And, in such case, what would befall the deserted chum? For the dog's sake he restrained himself, and he began to edge surreptitiously toward the ring exit with a view to sliding out unperceived with his splendid, underrated dog. But Ferris did not reach the gate unchecked. Judge Leighton had ended the parade and had stood the three dogs, one by one and then two at a time, on the platform while he studied them. Then he had crossed to the table and picked up the judging book and four ribbons, one blue, one red, one yellow, and one white. Three of these ribbons he handed to the three contestants' handlers. Then he stepped across the ring to where Ferris was edging his way toward the exit, and handed Link the remaining ribbon. It was dark blue with gilt lettering. 
Leighton did not so much as subject Chum to the handling and close inspection he had lavished on the three others. One expert glance had told the judge that the dark sable collie, led by this loutish countryman, was better fitted to clean up prizes at Madison Square Garden than to appear in a society dog show in the North Jersey hinterland. Leighton had viewed Chum, as a bored musician, listening to the piano antics of defective children, might have regarded the playing of a disguised Paderewski. Wherefore, he had waved the dog to one side while he judged the lesser entrance, and then had given him the merited first prize ribbon. Link, in a daze of bliss, stalked back to the bench, with Chum capering along at his side. The queer sixth sense of a collie told Chum his god was deliriously happy, and that Chum himself had somehow had a share in making him so. Hence the dog's former gloomy pacing changed to a series of ecstatic little dance steps, and he kept thrusting his cold muzzle into the cup of Ferris's palm. Again, Bench 65 was surrounded by an admiring clump of spectators. Chum and Link vied each other in their icy aloofness toward these admirers, but with a difference. Chum was unaffectedly bothered by so much unwelcome attention from strangers. Ferris, on the other hand, reveled in the knowledge that his beloved pet was the center of more adulation than was any other dog in all the section. Class after class went to be judged. Link was sorry he had not spent more money and entered Chum in every class. The initial victory had gone to his head. He had not known he could be so serenely happy. After a while, he started up at the attendant's droning announcement of, Winner's class, male Scotch collies, numbers 62, 65, 68, 70, 73. Again, Link and Chum set out for the ring. Link's glee had merged into an all-consuming nervousness, comparable only to a maiden hunter's buck ague. Chum, once more sensing Ferris's state of mind, lost his own glad buoyancy and paced solemnly alongside, peering worriedly up into Link's face at every few steps. All five entrants filed into the ring and began their parade. Leighton, in view of the importance of this crowning event, did not single out any one dog, as before, to stand to one side, nor did he gate any. He gave owners and spectators their full due by a thorough inspection of all five contestants. But as a result of his examination, he ended the suspense by handing Link Ferris a purple rosette, whereon was blazoned in gilt the legend Winners. A salvo of handclaps greeted the eminently just decision, and Chum left the ring to find a score of gratulatory hands stretched forth to pat him. Quite a little crowd escorted him back to his bench. A dozen people picked acquaintance with Link. They asked him all sorts of questions as to his dog. Link made monosyllabic and noncommittal replies to all of these, 
Even when the great Colonel Cyrus Marden himself deigned to come over to the collie section and stare at Chum, accompanying his scrutiny with a volley of patronizing inquiries. From the bystanders, Link learned something of real interest, namely that one of the specials was a big silver cup to be awarded to the best collie of either sex, and that after the females should have been judged, the winning female and chum must appear in the ring together to compete for this trophy. Sure enough, in less than thirty minutes, chum was summoned to the ring. There, awaiting him, was a dainty and temperamental Merle of the Tazewell strain. Exquisite and high-bred as was this female competitor, Judge Layton wasted little time on the examination before giving Ferris a tri-colored ribbon, whose possession entitled him to one of the shimmering silver mugs in the nearby trophy case. After receiving full assurance that the big cup should be his at the close of the show, Link returned to Chum's bench in ecstasy and sat down beside his tired dog, with one arm thrown lovingly around the collie's ruff. Chum nestled against his triumphant master as Link fondled his bunch of ribbons and went over mentally every move of his triumphal morning. The milling and changing groups of spectators in front of Bench 65 did not dwindle. Indeed, as the morning went on, they increased. People kept coming back to the bench and bringing others with them. Some of these people whispered together. Some merely stared and went away. Some asked Ferris carefully worded questions, to which the shyly happy mountaineer replied with sheepish grunts. The long period of judging came at last to an end, and the best dog in show special was called. Into the ring, Ferris escorted Chum, amid a multitude of fellow winners, representing one male or female of every breed exhibited. Leighton and another judge stood in the ring's center, and around them billowed the heterogeneous array. The two went at their gargantuan task with an expert swiftness. Mercilessly, dog after dog was weeded out and gated. At last, Chum and two others were all remaining of the many which had thronged the ring. The spectators were banked five deep and breathless round the ropes. The two judges went into brief executive session in one corner. Then Leighton crossed to Link for the fourth time that day, and gave him the gaudy rosette which proclaimed Chum best dog in the show. A roar of applause went up. Link felt dizzy and numb. Then, with a gasp of rapture, he stooped and gathered the bored Chum in his long arms in a bear-like ecstatic hug. "'We done it, Chummy,' he chortled. "'We done it!' Still in a daze, he followed the steward to the trophy case, where he received not only the shining silver cup, but a sovereign purse, wherein were ensconced ten ten-dollar gold pieces. It was all a dream, a wonder dream, from which presently he must awaken. Link was sure of that. 
but while the golden dream lasted, he knew the nameless joys of paradise. Chum close at his side, he made his way through the congratulating crowd toward the outer gate of the country club grounds. He had almost reached the wicket when someone touched him with unnecessary firmness on the shoulder. Not relishing the familiarity, Link turned a scowling visage on the interrupter of his triumphal homeward progress. At his elbow stood a stockily-built man, dressed with severe plainness. "'You're Lincoln Ferris?' queried the stranger, more as if stating aggressively a fact than making an inquiry. "'Yup,' said Link, cross at this annoying break-in upon his trance of happiness. "'What'd you want?' he added. "'Please step back to the clubhouse a minute with me,' returned the stranger, civilly enough, but with the same bossy firmness in his tone that had jarred Ferris in his touch. "'One or two people want to speak to you. Bring along your dog.' Link glowered. He fancied he knew what was in store. Some of the ultra-select had gathered in the holy interior of the clubhouse and wanted a private view of Chum unsullied by the noisy presence of the crowd outside. They would talk patronizingly to Link and perhaps even try to coax him into selling Chum. The thought decided Ferris. "'I'm going home,' he said roughly. "'You're coming with me,' contradicted the man in that same quiet voice, but slipping his muscular arm into Link's. With his other hand he shifted the lapel of his coat, displaying a police badge on its reverse. Still avoiding any outward appearance of force, he turned about, with his arm locked in Ferris's, and started toward the clubhouse. "'Here!' expostulated poor Link, with all a true mountaineer's horror of the police. "'What's all this? I ain't broke no law. I—' An ugly growl from Chum punctuated his sacred plea. Noting the terror in his master's tone and the grip of the stranger on Link's arm, Chum had spun round to face the two. The collie's eyes were fixed grimly upon the plainclothesman's temptingly thick throat. One corner of Chum's upper lip was curled back, displaying a businesslike if snowy fang. His head was lowered. Deep in his furry throat a succession of legato growls were born. The plainclothesman knew much about dogs. He knew, for example, that when a dog holds his head high and barks, there is no special danger to be feared from him. But he also knew that when a dog lowers his head and growls, showing his eye-tooth, he means business and the man shrank from the menace. One hand crept back instinctively toward his hip pocket. Link saw the purely involuntary gesture, and he shook in his boots. It was thus a Hampton constable had once reached back when a stray cur snapped at him, and that constable had completed the movement by drawing a pistol and shooting the cur. Perhaps this non-uniformed stranger meant to do the same thing. "'Hold on,' begged Link, intervening between the man and the dog. "'I'll go along with you, peaceful. "'Quit, chum. It's all right.' 
The dog still looked undecided. He did not like this new note in his god's voice. But he obeyed the injunction and fell into step at Link's side as usual. Ferris suffered himself to be piloted, unresisting, through the tattered remnant of the crowd and up the clubhouse steps. There his conductor led him through the sacred portals and down a wide hallway to the door of a committee room. Throwing open the door, he ushered in his captive and the dog, entering behind them and reclosing the heavy door. In the room, round a table, sat several persons, all men except one. The exception was the girl whose collie had had the bench next to Chum's. At the table-head, looking very magisterial indeed, sat Colonel Marden. Beside him lounged a larger and older man in a plaid sports suit. Link's escort ranged his prisoners at the foot of the table, Chum standing tight against Ferris's knee as if to guard him from possible harm. Link stood glowering in sullen perplexity at the colonel. Marden cleared his voice pompously, then spoke. "'Ferris,' he began with much impressiveness, "'I am a magistrate of this county, as you perhaps know. "'You may consider yourself before the bar of justice "'and reply to my questions accordingly.' Awed by this thundered preamble, Ferris made shift to mutter, "'I ain't broke no laws.' "'What'd you want of me, anyhow?' First of all,' proceeded Marden, "'where did you get that dog?' "'Chum here?' said Ferris. "'Why, I come across him early last spring "'on the patch of road just outside of Hampton. "'He was a-layin' in a ditch with his leg bust. "'Throwed off an auto, I figured it. "'I took him home and—' He paused as the sport-suited man next to Marden nodded excitedly to the girl and then whispered to the colonel. "'You took him home?' pursued Marden. "'Couldn't you see he was a valuable dog?' "'I could see he was a sufferin' and dyin' dog,' retorted Link. "'I could see he was a goner, lest I took him home and tended him.' If you're aiming at finding out why I went on keeping him after that, I'd done so because no one claimed him. I put up notices about him. I put one up at the post office here, too. I... He did, interrupted the girl. That's true. I saw it. Only the notice said it was a bird dog. That's why we didn't follow it up. He... Miss Galt suggested Marden, in lofty reproof. "'Suppose you leave the interrogatory to me, if you please.' "'Yes, I recollect that notice. My attention was called to it at the time. But,' again addressing Link, "'why did you call Glenmuir Cavalier a bird dog? Was it to throw us off the track, or—' "'Don't know, no, what's-his-name, Cavalier,' snapped Ferris. This dog's name is Chum. Like you can see in my entry blank, what's laying on the table in front of you. I advertised Chum as a bird dog because I suppose he was a bird dog. I ain't a sharp on dogs. He's the fust one I ever had. 
If he ain't a bird dog, tain't my fault. He looks more like one than t'other breeds I'd seen, so I called him one. There's no need to raise your voice at me, rebuked the colonel. I am disposed to accept your explanation. But if you read the local papers, you must have seen— I did read em, said Ferris. I read em steady for a month or more to see was there was advertisement for a lost dog. Nary an advertisement did I see except one for a sable collie. Sable means black. I know cause our dominie told me so. I asked him when I see that piece in the paper. Chum ain't black nor nowhere's near black. So I knowed it couldn't be him. What'd you want of me anyhow? he demanded once more. Again, I am disposed to credit your explanation boomed the colonel, frowning down a ripple of giggles that had its rise in Miss Galt. "'And I am disposed to acquit you of consciously dishonest intent. I am glad to do so. Here is the situation. Early last spring, Mr. Galt, indicating the sport suit wearer at his left, brought from the famous Glenmuir Collie Kennels on the Hudson an unusually fine young collie, a dog for which connoisseurs predicted a great future in the show ring. He purchased it as a gift for his daughter, Miss Marion Galt. He inclined his head slightly toward the girl, then proceeded. As Mr. Glenmuir was disbanding his kennel, Mr. Galt was able to secure the dog, Glenmuir Cavalier. He started for Craigswold with the dog on the rear seat of the car. At first he kept a hand on the dog's collar, but as the collie made no attempt to escape, he soon turned around, he was in the front seat, and paid no more attention to him. Just outside of Suffern he looked back to find Cavalier had disappeared. He advertised and made all possible efforts to locate the dog, but he could get no clue to him until today. Seeing this dog of yours in the show ring, he recognized him at once. The pompously booming voice, with its stilted diction, ceased. All eyes were upon Link Ferris. The mountaineer, stung to life by the silence and the multiple gaze, came out of his trance of shock. Then, then, he stuttered, forcing the words from a throat sanded by sudden dread, then Chum rightly belongs to this man? Quite so, assented Marden, in some relief. I am glad you grasp the point so readily. Mr. Galt has taken the matter over with me, and he is taking a remarkably broad and generous view of the case, if I may say so. He is not only willing that you should keep the cup and the cash prize which you have won today, but he is also ready to pay to you the seventy-five-dollar reward he offered for the return of Glenmuir Cavalier. I repeat, this strikes me as most generous. No! yelled Link, a spasm of foreseen loneliness sweeping over him. No! He can't have him. Nobody can. Why, Chum's my dog. I've learned him to fetch cows and shake hands and and everything. 
and he's drugged me out of the lake when I was a-drowndin', and he's done a heap more than that for me. He's drugged me up to my feet, out in worthlessness, too, and he's learned me that livin' is worth while. He's my—my—he's my dog, he finished lamely, his scared eyes swimming the circle of faces in panic appeal. "'That'll do, Ferris,' coldly exhorted the colonel. "'We wish no scenes here. "'You will take this seventy-five-dollar check "'which Mr. Galt has so kindly made out for you, "'and you will go.' "'Leavin' chum behind?' babbled Ferris, aghast. "'Not leavin' chum behind. "'Please not!' He pulled himself together with an effort that drove his nails bitingly into his palms and left his face gray. He saw the uselessness of pleading with these people of polished iron who could not understand his fearful loss. For the sake of Chum, for the sake of the self-respecting man he himself had become, he would not let himself go to pieces. Forcing his shaken voice to a dry steadiness, he addressed the uneasily squirming Galt. "'What'd you pay for Chum when you bought him off in that Hudson River feller, that Glenmere chap?' he demanded. "'Why, as a matter of fact,' responded Galt, "'as Colonel Martin has told you, I couldn't have hoped to get such a promising collie at any price. It... "'What'd you pay for him?' insisted Link, his voice harsh and unconsciously domineering, as a vague new hope dawned on his troubled mind. "'I paid six hundred dollars,' answered Galt shortly, in annoyance at the boar's manner. "'Good,' approved Link. "'That gives us something to go on. I'll pay you six hundred dollars for him back. This hundred dollars in gold, and this your silver cup, and seven dollars more I got with me to bind the bargain. And a second mortgage on my farm for the rest. For as much of the rest, he amended, as I ain't got ready cash for. In his stark earnestness, Link's rough voice sounded more hectoring and unpleasant than before. Galt, unused to such talk from the alleged peasantry, resolved to cut short the haggling. "'Sell for six hundred a dog that's cleaned up best in the show?' he rasped. "'No, thank you. Leighton says Cavalier will go far. One man, ten minutes ago, offered me a thousand for him.' "'A thousand? repeated Ferris, scared at the magnitude of the sum. Then, rallying, he asked, "'What will you let me have him for, then?' Set a price, can't you? The dog is not for sale, curtly replied Galt, busying himself with the lighting of a cigarette. Take Mr. Galt's check and go, commanded Marden, thrusting the slip of paper at Link. I think there is nothing more to say. I have an appointment at... He hesitated. Regardless of the other's presence, Ferris dropped to one knee beside the uncomprehending dog. With his arm about Chum's neck, he bent close to the collie's ear and whispered, "'Good-bye, Chummy. 
It's goodbye for keeps, too. Don't you get to thinkin' I've gone and deserted you, nor got tired of you, nor nothin', chum, because I'd a damn sight rather leave one of my two legs here than to leave you. I... I guess only God rightly knows all you done for me, chum. But I ain't a-goin' to forget none of it. Lord, but it's going to be pretty terrible to home without you. He got to his feet, winking back a mist from his red eyes, and turning blindly toward the door. Here, boomed Marden after him, you've forgotten your check. I don't aim to take no measly money for giving up the only friend I got, snarled Link over his shoulder. Keep it for a tip. It was a good exit line, but it was spoiled, because as Ferris reached the door and groped for its knob, Chum was beside him, glad to get out of this uncongenial assembly and to be alone with the master who seemed so unhappy and so direly in need of consolation. Link stiffened to his full height. With one hand lovingly laid on the collie's silken head, he mumbled, no, chum, you can't come along. Back, boy. Stay here. Lowering at Galt, he added, He ain't never been hit, nor yet swore at, and he don't need to be. Treat him nice, like he's used to being treated. And don't get sore at him if he mopes for me, just at fust. Cause he's sure to. Dogs ain't like folks. They got hearts. Folks has only got souls. I guess dogs has the best of it at that. Ferris swung open the door and stumbled out, not trusting himself for a backward glance at the wistfully grieved dog he had left behind. Lurchingly he made off across the lawn and out through the wicket. He was numb and sick. He moved mechanically and with no conscious power of thought or of locomotion. Out in the high road, a homing instinct guided his leaden feet in the direction of Hampton, and he plodded dazedly the interminable four miles that separated him from his desolate farm. As he turned in at his own gate, he was aware of a poignant dread that pierced his numbness and he knew it was for a dread of entering the house and of finding no one to welcome him. Setting his teeth, he went forward, unlocked the door, and stamped into the silent kitchen. Upon the table he dumped the paper-swathed cup he had been carrying unnoticed under his arm. Beside it he threw the little purse full of gold pieces and the wad of prize ribbons. Stepping back, his foot struck something. He looked down and saw it was a gay-colored rubber ball he had bought months ago for Chum, the dog's favorite plaything. His face twisting, Link snatched up the ball and went out into the steps to throw it far out of sight, that it might no more remind him of the pet who had so often coaxed him to toss it for retrieval. Ferris hurled the ball far out into the garden. As the missile left his hand, an exultant bark re-echoed through the silence of the sunset. Chum, who had been trotting demurely up the walk, 
sprang gleefully in pursuit of the ball, and presently came galloping back to the dazedly incredulous Link, with the many-colored sphere of rubber between his jaws. Chum had had no trouble at all in catching his master's trail and following it home. He would have overtaken the slow-slouching Ferris had he been able to slip out of the clubhouse sooner. And now it pleased him to be welcomed by this evident invitation to a game of ball. Link gave a gulping cry and buried both hands in the collie's ruff, staring down at the dancing dog in an agony of rapture. Then, all at once, his muscles tensed, and his newly flushed face went green-white again. "'I... I guess we gotta play it square, chum,' he muttered aloud with something like a groan. "'I was blattin' to him up there how you'd made a white man of me. "'And regular white man don't keep what ain't his own property. "'Come along, chummy.' His jaw very tense, his back painfully stiff, Link strode heavily down the lane and out into the high road. Chum, always eager for a walk with his god, frisked about him in delight. He had traversed the bulk of the distance to Craigswold, the dog beside him, when he remembered that he had left his horse and buggy at the livery stable there in the morning. Well, that would save his aching feet a four-mile walk home. In the meantime, he and Chum stepped to the roadside to avoid a fast-traveling little motor car which was bearing down on them from the direction of Craigswold. The car did not pass them. Instead, it came to a gear-racking halt close beside Ferris. Link, glancing up in dull lack of interest, beheld Galt and the latter's daughter staring down at him. "'Chum came home,' said Ferris, scowling at them. "'He trailed me. Don't lick him for it. He's only a dog, and he didn't know no better. I was bringing him back to you.' The girl looked sharply at her father. Galt fidgeted uneasily, as he had done once or twice that afternoon in the clubhouse, and he avoided his daughter's gaze. So she turned her level eyes on Link. "'Mr. Ferris,' she said very quietly, "'do you mean to say, when this dog came back to you, you are actually going to return him to us?' instead of hiding him somewhere till the search was over? "'I'm here, ain't I?' counted Ferris defiantly. "'But why?' she insisted. "'Why?' "'Because I'm a fool, I suppose,' he growled. "'I guess Chum wouldn't care much about living with a thief. "'Take him up there with you on the seat. "'Don't let him fall out. "'And—' his voice scaling a half-octave in its pain. "'Keep him to home after this. I ain't no measly angel. I can't swear I'd have the grit to fetch him back another time.' He stopped to note a curious phenomenon. There were actually tears in the girl's big grave eyes. Link wondered why. Then she said, "'Cavalier isn't my father's dog. He's mine.' My father gave him to me when he bought him, last spring. Colonel Marden seemed to have forgotten that today. 
and I didn't want to start a squabble by reminding him of it. After all, it's my father's affair and mine. Nobody else's. My father got me another collie last spring to take Cavalier's place, a collie I'm ever so fond of. So I don't need Cavalier. I don't want him. I tried to find you to tell you so, but you had gone. So I got my father to drive me to your place. We'd have started sooner, but Cavalier got away, and we waited to look for him, to bring him along. Bring him along? Mutteringly echoed the blank-brained Link. What fur? Why, laughed the girl, because your house is where he belongs and where he's going to live, just as he has been living all summer. Ferris caught his breath in a choked wheeze of unbelieving ecstasy. God, he breathed, God. Then he stammered brokenly, They, they don't seem no right words to, to thank you, ma'am. But maybe you understand what I'd want to say if I could? Yes, she said gently. I think I understand. I understood from the minute I saw you and the dog together. That's why I decided I didn't want him. That's why I... And you'll get that thousand dollars, cried Link, his fingers buried rapturously in Chum's fur. Every cent of it. I... I think, interrupted the girl, winking very fast, I think I've got what I wanted already. My father doesn't want the money either. Do you, Dad? Oh, for heaven's sake, stop rubbing it in, fumed Galt. Come on home. It's getting cold. I ought to thank the Lord for not having you anywhere near me in Wall Street, girl. You'd send me under the hammer in a week. He kicked the accelerator, and the little car whizzed off in the twilight. Chum, observed Ferris, gaping after it. Chum, I guess the good Lord built that gal the same day he built you. If he did, well, he sure done one grand day's work. End of chapter 3 Recording by Roger Moline